This episode was a real hole-in-one because I got to chat with Tom Wong, creator of Qubit Touchdown and quantum algorithm researcher extraordinaire. Or maybe it was a home run. As you can tell, I have no idea what I'm doing with the sports ball metaphors, but luckily Tom does. Enough that he was able to uh, make his own game teaching quantum computing uh, using a sports ball metaphor. So let's tune into this slam dunk of an episode. Take it away, me from the past. All right, so I have with me Tom Wong, who is a professor at Creighton University. And today we're going to be talking about Qubit Touchdown and some of his work in quantum search. Um, but before we dive into that, uh, Tom, could you give us a bit of your background about how you got into quantum computing and uh, how you got interested in all that? Yeah, so for me, when I went to college, I actually was intending to uh, become a middle school math teacher. So I went in as a math major and an urban education minor. And so you know, I started off with those classes, but um, I also really loved my high school physics, physics class. Um, so I took honors physics with my high school teacher when I was a sophomore, and then later on my school added AP physics. So I went back and took AP physics with her as a senior. So I actually took high school physics twice with the same teacher and I loved it. And so when I went to college, I was like, well, I also love my physics classes. I'll take that while doing the math major. And then I'd also learned that as a kid to program and did that throughout high school, mostly like web development and so forth. But I never actually taken a course in uh, computer science. And so I thought it'd be fun to actually take a course in it. So I started taking you know, CS courses in college as well. And so throughout college, I find, found that my interest in math and physics and computer science kept, uh, kept on building. And I, I wasn't really sure, like, you know, which one should I major in? Was still interested in teaching. Uh, and just through various events, um, I ended up being able to triple major in all three of those. Um, which actually plays very well now into my, my work in quantum computing because quantum computing is very uh, interdisciplinary and knowing physics and computer science and mathematics and now with more engineers coming in to the field, um, being able to work between the different disciplines has been really useful. And so after I finished college, I actually uh, worked as a math teacher. Um, I actually taught freshman in high school. So it's high school, not middle school. But I discovered that teaching freshmen is much more like teaching middle schoolers than high schoolers in a way. So in some sense, I still had my wish. Um, so I did that and then um, was teaching at an uh, inner city school. I mentioned that I was an urban education minor. So I had an interest in that. But at least for the school I was at, I realized that the teacher turnover rate was incredibly high. And there was, and you know, it was possible for me to to work in that strenuous environment um, right after college, but I, I realized that's not something I could do long term. And obviously, my interest in the sciences was still strong, so I decided to go to grad school. Um, I, I didn't ever, I never mentioned where I went to college. I went to college at Santa Clara University um, in the Bay Area in California. Um, so then I went to grad school at UC San Diego in physics, and I picked physics because I felt like I got to do math and programming. Um, so I did that. And then after my first year, I needed to find some research, find a research advisor. And so, um, at that point I'd heard about quantum computing through, I think just popular articles or something like that, but really didn't know what it, it actually was. And so I Googled, you know, are there any quantum computing professors at, at, uh, UC San Diego? And I found David Meyer, who's actually a math professor, but did his PhD in quantum gravity and things like that and knows more physics than like I do as a, as a physicist. Um, 
and so I reached out to him about if you know he had a summer project I could work on in quantum computing. So we worked together on something. Um, I liked it. Uh, we got along well. He had funding, and so I stuck with that field and I did my thesis in quantum computing. Um, and then I did so after graduating from that. So got my PhD in physics with a math advisor. I did a postdoc in computer science at the University of Latvia with Andres and Bynes, um, who's well known in quantum algorithms. And then I did another postdoc in computer science at the University of Texas at Austin with Scott Aronson. And so you see this interplay again that you know, I'm a physicist by training, was advised for my PhD by a mathematician, did two postdocs in uh, computer science, and then uh, I landed a job in the physics department at Creighton University, where I've been for four years. Um, and I get to work with students that um, are typically physics majors plus something else. It's like physics and math double major, or physics and computer science double major, or physics and data science double major. And so it's, it's, it fits very well. Like there are these groups of students that kind of fit naturally in these interdisciplinary area interests like I had. And um, we've, we've been able to work together in a great way. That's super cool. And it's, I mean, it's, it's obviously um, a natural progression with your own life, but it seems like a big jump to go from uh, urban education to quantum computing. Um. Yeah, but in some sense, I still carry that with me today, because part of the reason why I decided to go to Creighton as a professor was that I enjoyed teaching and working with students. And at Creighton, it's similar to my undergraduate institution, of uh, uh, which was which was Santa Clara University. It's that you get a lot of close interaction with with students, and when we're doing research together, like I'm really there doing the research with them. Because um, some professors, when they uh, become professors, they actually become more like project managers, where they're working with budgets and grants and things like that. And a lot of them. Uh, are kind of disappointed with the fact that they don't get as much time actually being in the weeds of the research. Um, but for me, working primarily with undergraduates, I can't just, you know, set them off on a problem, like, go on your own, like, good luck, I'll just manage the budgets of things. You know, it's like, no, I'm meeting with them weekly and regularly and checking in with them, seeing how they're doing, working out problems together on the Blackboard, where, you know, if I get to stay very involved with the research. And I think there's something special about leading undergraduates in research because that's typically their first research experience and I think that can be a really formative thing to be the first person that exposes them to what science really is because science isn't textbook problems science is doing research and discovering things that people don't know yet and so to be able to walk them through what science really is I think is a very special thing something I'm very honored to be able to do with with my students. That's awesome. And uh, speaking of research, I wanted to go back to something you said earlier, which was interesting, is that you worked with a professor in Latvia. Um, were yes. you there physically or was that like long distance? I was there physically. So I moved to Latvia and I was there for two years. And actually, when I moved there, that was my first time ever being in Europe. Um, and so, yeah, it was definitely a, a big adventure, obviously. Like, for me, I, I was born and raised in California. And like many Americans, I dreamed of, like, backpacking through Europe or something like that. And so when this opportunity came about, I was like, well, I've always wanted to visit Europe. Never did because, you know, I guess with triple majoring, like, you, you typically can't fit, like, studying abroad or things <laughs> like that, right? Um, so I was like, well, I've always wanted to visit Europe. I have this opportunity. I'm, I might as well move there. You know, it's like, if I don't do it now, like, when am I going to do it? And so, yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a really great um, ex, 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 experience to see 
see a see see this like other part of the world Super cool. And okay, so yeah, uh, now that we've got background stuff done, um, let's talk some more about what we're, what we're here to talk about. Um, mm -hmm. And we'll start with the fun stuff, which is uh, Qubit Touchdown, which is this yeah. quantum computing um, game you've created. Yeah. Uh, how, do, how does that work? So it actually uh, came about because of a course that I teach at Creighton, which is basically like an introduction to classical and quantum uh, com computing. And the idea with this course is that it doesn't have any advanced mathematics as a prerequisite. It doesn't have linear algebra, in case listeners are uh, familiar with that. It doesn't have that as a prerequisite, which is typically the base math that people require for a quantum computing course. But I actually don't even require that. The goal with this course is that even a freshman could take it and could understand and learn the basics of how classical computers work and then by extension how quantum computers work. And so, um, you know, with this course, meant to be more uh, accessible. I, th I think games are a great, great way to kind of introduce topics and to break some of the like fear of quantum computing because quantum things have a reputation for being yeah. difficult or hard to understand. And, you know, especially if you're trying to appeal to undergrads or even freshmen, you know, you don't want them to be scared away. And so um, games are a great, great way to kind of break the ice. And so um, I'm not the first person to think of that. Other people have created games. And in fact, um, I was using and still do use a game that IBM actually created called uh, Entanglion. And so they actually, you know, graciously sent me several copies that I could use in my classroom. And we play that in the class. So my first time teaching it, we played that game when we started the unit on quantum computing. So we finished all the classical computing stuff. We're starting quantum computing. It's like, okay, great way to start this is we're going to play this board game. And you're going to realize that quantum computing isn't isn't bad, right? It's like, basically, if you can play this board game, you're doing quantum computing, actually. And so, you know, you can do this. And so one of the things with IBM's game is that um, it's a two-player game and it's space-themed. So there's these two spaceships that the players move around and those spaceships correspond to two qubits, two quantum bits. And as you move them around, you're actually doing quantum uh, computations uh, without the player knowing that. Um, and so... One of the challenges that I found with that, though, is that in my teaching, I didn't want to start with two qubits. I wanted to start with one qubit. And so it's like, OK, I need a game that starts with just one qubit. And so looking into it, I didn't find something that I was really happy with. And so I decided to create my own. And that's how Qubit Touchdown came around. So it's, it's still a two-player game, but just it just involves one piece that you move around. And that corresponds to a single qubit. And um, it's football themed. Maybe I should specify for your listeners. And when I say football, I mean like American football, not soccer. <laughs> so it's American football themed. And at least being in the Midwest at Creighton University where football was really popular, it's very easy to explain. I can explain the game basically in like a minute and students just get it. Like, oh yeah, okay, it, it is like football. I got this and they can just play right away, um, which is another thing I wanted. I found with the um, Entanglion board game that quantum compute that IBM created, because it is two qubits, the rules are all, or just by default going to be more complicated. And I felt that the amount of time it took explaining the rules was a, a little much if I was trying to use it to uh, not scare away students. You know, <laughs> so basically, you know, if it's like, oh, this is basically this board game, Qubit Touchdown, you're playing football. You know, whoever you, you take turns moving the football, whoever scores the most touchdowns wins. Like that's it. Students like, okay, like that doesn't sound intimidating at all. I can do this. So that, that was that, that's basically the idea. Um, I wanted a good, simple, one qubit 
board game that that students could play, you know, without any background in quantum computing. Yeah. So then is it, if it's similar to Entanglion, which um, I've actually, I've gotten the opportunity to play because my, my physics nice. teacher uh, got a couple copies. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. It's, it's super fun. And I'll, I'll put links in the description. I believe you can like print out your own board if you want. You to. can. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, if, if listeners want to do that, I, I recommend it. Um, but okay. So in, in Entanglion, you move your pieces around by like playing different, um, like Hadamard gate or X gate. Um, yeah. so, same idea in. It's the same time. idea, except in uh, in uh, in Tanglion, It's a two-player game, and you're playing on the same team. So you're trying to win together, or you lose together. Whereas Cubit Touchdown, you're playing uh, uh, um, against each other. So basically, like your one team, your one football team against the other football team, and you take turns moving the football. Um, and so all of the the movements on the board, they actually correspond to quantum gates. Also the Hadamard, you know, your like poly gates, things like that. And also measurements, actually. Hmm. That was another thing that I included. Um, and so it's, the, it's basically the like same idea where you have a qubit, you're playing what are essentially quantum gates, but students can play the game without no, needing to know any of that. To them, it's just different moves of the football. And then whoever scores the most touchdowns wins. Cool. Yeah, and so the idea is I introduce it without any reference to quantum computing, just purely based on football and then after they've played and are comfortable with it then i explain to them like you guys are doing quantum computing without realizing it and then they go oh wow that wasn't that bad you know <laughs> like i can do this is that is the idea and then we go into how um with one qubit how all the quantum gates actually act on that one qubit and how that corresponds to exactly what they did in the board game so they're able to actually understand exactly how the board game was created i, I always love those like moments when your teacher sneaks some learning into it you're like yeah. i was just having fun and you gotta you gotta make it all about learning <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but uh, uh last last question about qubit touchdown um is did you did you do football theme just for the students or are you also a football fan um i guess i'm also a football fan in the sense that you know i grew up in the u.s and you know i like football i, I wouldn't say i'm as big of a fan as some people yeah. Um, but you know, what I was, I don't, I don't watch it regularly, but you know, when the Super Bowl comes on, I, I make a point to watch that certainly. Um, I think the football theme actually work. I think it just works really well. Like I've, I brought this game to uh, a quantum computing conference in, in France where there's, where there are researchers from all over the world, many from Europe, obviously, because it was in France, it's easier to get to, but we had the researchers from Asia as well and North America. And, um, you know, there's some questions like, oh, you know, why didn't you make it like soccer themed or hockey themed, you know, any other sport? And basically, like, the mechanics of those sports just didn't fit well with the game. It, it, it's, like, it's like, if you actually play Cubit Touchdown, you realize how well the, the quantum base that I picked actually matched the game of American football. So, for example, like, um, when you start off the a game in American football, you usually uh, kick off. So you're like, you, so you'll like kick the ball, you know, and it'll land somewhere and that's where you'll, you'll start the game basically. And same thing after you score, after you score, you would kick off to the other team and then you would play from there. And so in Cuba touchdown, I actually have this die. That's a binary die. So it only has zero and 
zero and one as the outcome. So it's a six-sided die. Three of the sides are zero and the other three are one. So basically, if you roll this, you have 50% chance of getting zero and a 50% chance of getting one. And this is what you roll when you kick off. And so the way that the board works is that this actually corresponds to a measurement. So whenever you kick off, if you look at the state that the qubit is actually in, there's a 50% chance that you get zero for the measurement and a 50% chance that you get one for the measurement. And so just this notion of like, just this football rule of kicking off actually corresponds perfectly to this quantum measurement thing for the board. And so, yeah, I wasn't really able to make those same connections with other sports. I'm sure that there are great quantum board games that will uh, be invented in the future that are based on other sports, but um, maybe, but maybe my lack of expertise in those other sports means that it's not going to be me who, <laughs> who uh, creates those games. Maybe I'm just more uh, comfortable with American football. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, who who would have guessed that American football and quantum computing were a match made in heaven? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but you don't all, just do uh, qubit touchdown. You also do a lot of research and specifically around quantum search. Um, and so I wanted to ask, like, why why is that that you focus so much on quantum search just personally? I think it, it originated from my PhD thesis. So it would be my PhD advisor, David Meyer, who came up with this, with the idea that would turn into my research, uh, into my thesis, which is um, basically the idea of, like, how can you quantify how powerful a model of computation is? So if you have an uh, unsorted list and you want to search it classically, um, so imagine you have like a, uh, like a shuffled deck of cards and you're looking for the ace of spades. So because the deck of cards is shuffled, the, the only way to find the ace of spades is just to just go through each card one at a time until you find the ace of spades. Uh, like, because it's not sorted. If it were sorted, you could just go to where the spades are and then you go to the, where the ace is, right? So that'd be really quick. But if it's shuffled and mixed up, you basically just have to go one card at a time until you reach the ace of spades. And so, you know, it might be the very first card or it might be the very last card. And so on average, you have to search half the cards. Um, so, um, but if you have a quantum computer, then using something called Grover's algorithm, you can actually search uh, and find the card you're looking for, the ace of spades, in the square root of the number of cards, which is, which is faster. Um, especially as the number of cards gets bigger and bigger, if you have a different kind of deck with more and more cards, or like a, then uh, you know this this like square root speed up that you get with a quantum computer becomes more and more important. And so you might ask, like, okay, how quickly can a different type of computer uh, search this unordered or shuffled deck of cards? And it could be just some theoretical type of computer that may not even exist. You can think of some wild thing, like what if a computer can utilize time travel? Like how quickly can it search? Or you know, you can come up with all sorts of crazy things that may or may that like may be more or less based on physical reality. And so for us, we looked at a very reasonable thing. So not something like sci-fi-ish. We looked at uh, quantum, many body quantum systems with effective nonlinearities. And basically that's like, when you have many quantum particles put together, then in some systems, they actually start to act in this very unique way, which is called, Nonlinear, um, even though fundamentally um, the evolution is linear, um, you don't have to know what 
linear and nonlinear. Basically, when you have a bunch of quantum particles together, sometimes they act in this special way. And we're asking, can you like, th can this special way that they act uh, solve computational problems faster? And so um, we were able to show that if you have this nonlinearity, that uh, this other model of computation can actually search even faster than than the square root of n. Um, but fundamentally, there has to be some trade-off. And the trade-off is that you have to have a, enough particles for this behavior to, to manifest. So there is some trade-off. But basically, it's like, because you can say very concrete things about searching, like how fast a classical computer can search, how fast a quantum computer can search, how fast some, you know, whatever model of computation you want to look at can search, it's very easy to compare the computational powers in that way. And so searching is a great question because you can say very concrete things about it, unlike a lot of things in like AI and like uh, uh, machine learning. Like there's very little we can actually say concretely from a math proof perspective. Like most of the things we know about it are based just from like experience and playing with it. Um, searching is almost the like opposite of that. Like yeah, we could say very concrete things. And so that that's kind of how it started. And you know, and searching remains just a very basic fundamental question. I mean, there are multi-billion dollar tech companies that are that exist because they can search better than other people. You know, basically like search engine companies and like and like and like database companies, things like that. So um, yeah, it remains. It's a very basic problem, but it still remains a very important and foundational problem. It's like it's. A, to like bring it back to sports, you know, it doesn't matter how advanced you get, you still go back to and practice the like basics. And if you can improve a little bit in the basics, that can have huge ramifications in your in your actual play. And so, you know, searching is one of those things where if you can improve these basic things like searching, you know, then it can help with computation for all sorts of other things. Yeah, yeah. And the, the point you made about like searching versus AI ML is I think easy to see if you illustrate it with like the the deck of cards like you said you either find the ace of spades or you don't versus yeah. like uh this face does not exist uh dot com yeah. or dot net or whatever it is you can go like mm -hmm. yeah okay that's a face but there's no like mathematical way to quantify how much of a face that is <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that, that's interesting and so you you mentioned grover's algorithm earlier mm -hmm. um and maybe maybe the answer was in your answer but one of the questions i had was um, some people might think, be thinking that quantum search is already solved and we, we have this Grover's algorithm. What could we possibly do better? Is that is Grover's algorithm um, talking about linear systems, whereas you're looking at these nonlinear systems? Or is there some other difference? It's actually some other difference. So even though my PhD thesis started off with this investigation into nonlinear systems, uh, since then, as a postdoc and now as a professor, I've been looking primarily at just standard quantum computing, linear everything. Um, and the search problems I've been looking at um, are now taking into account the idea that you don't necessarily have access to all your data at once. And so this is actually something that uh, was noted, I want to say in the early 2000s, actually, um, where um, researchers noted that to use Grover's algorithm, you basically have to assume that you have access to all your data at once. And that's not always true, even in classical computing. So if you have your data stored 
on like a tape drive just to make it the easiest. So basically you have your data laid out in a line. So basically, like let's say you're at the beginning of your tape and you want to access some data at the end of your tape. Well, now you have to wind all of the spools until you get to the end of the tape and then you can read it to see what it is. And so basically, like you have to jump back and forth in order to access your data. It's the same thing with a hard drive. Now you have these like circular platters and in order to get to a piece of data, you have to spin the hard drive and you maybe move the head in order to get there. And so it actually takes time to reach different pieces of data. You don't necessarily have access to all of it at once. Um, people might argue, oh, even with like, but, but, but now we have like SSDs and flash memories and that like better and faster. Well, it's like, you don't have an infinite supply. Like some of your data might be on flash. Some of it might be on RAM, which in some sense is, is faster to access than the, than going to an SSD. It may be that you run out of memory in your SSD that's integrated to your computer and you have like some more storage that's plugged in through USB. So now it's like, okay, there's some other data over there that you have access to your USB cable and all this stuff. So basically it's like data is not instantly um, accessible. Um, and so basically if, if the data has some spatial arrangement where you can only access the data you're at and then the data that's like right next to it that you can move to immediately, like how does that affect how quickly you can search? And so it, this is actually still an uh, open question. So de depending on what the structure of that data is, if it's like structured in a straight line, like a tape drive, or if it's structured like a two-dimensional grid, like a platter or something like that, then um, how quickly a classical computer and a quantum computer can search those things will vary depending on how complicated your structure is. And so that's actually been the topic of my research um, for the past several years. Interesting. So is this is this related to, I know that there's a problem um, with Grover's algorithm, which is that, or and actually a number of these, um, not classical, but standard uh, quantum computing algorithms that assume you've got access to quantum RAM. Is this that same problem? Mm, I'd say that it's related, okay. but maybe a little bit different at the same time. I think people raise these these issues, uh, like I mentioned, in the early 2000s, and I think that was before some of the more modern objections to quantum RAM. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, um, and uh, one of the interesting uh, the interesting terms that you've used that I saw um, on on your website, which by the way, uh, people should go check out um, his website because he's got this really cool graph of research that you've done, and I think everyone should have one of those. <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> Um, which is this uh, lackadaisical quantum walk. So let's mm -hmm. let's start with, I don't think we've ever talked about quantum walks on the podcast before. So what is a okay. quantum walk? Yeah, so a quantum walk is a quantum version of a random walk. So let me talk about what a random walk is. So let's say in one dimension, the simplest random walk is a one-dimensional walk. So imagine like you flip a coin, if it's heads, you take a step to the right. If it's tails, you take a step to the left. So sometimes people make this analogy that it's like, the walk that a drunk person would make. So if someone's had too many drinks, they're like stammering and, you know, they're just kind of taking random steps to the street, down the street one way and random street steps down the street the other way. So it's the same idea. You know, you have a random chance of stepping one way, a random chance of stepping another way. And you might ask, after 100 steps, you know, what's the likelihood that the walk, that the random walker, that this drunk person is 
you know, at a particular location? Like what's the chance, what's the, what's the chance that he's far away from where he started or what's the chance that he's close to where he started and things like that. And so the probability distribution that you get um, kind of looks like a bell curve. So basically you're, you're most likely near the region where you started out, which is actually great for someone who's drunk because it means that you're not going to wander too far away uh, if you are actually walking around randomly. And it turns out that these classical random walks uh, underpin a lot of classical algorithms. So this is actually a very useful algorithmic tool um, and, its and, and its generalization to something called Markov chains, where um, you can transition now with different probabilities. So instead of just half-half, it might be you know, 75% one way, a quarter, you know, 25% another way, and things like that. And you can use this to, uh, uh, to, to, to describe all sorts of processes from finance and economics to, to physics and, and, and other things. Um, but basically, from a quantum computing perspective, like these are important classically in classical computer science. So you might ask, like, would their quantum B versions be important for quantum computing? And it turns out, yes, that actually the quantum version of this um, is one of the ways that one of the like underpinnings of a lot of quantum algorithms. And so there are a lot of quantum algorithms that were uh, uh, first found in the framework of a quantum walk. And then uh, any quantum walk can, at least in theory, be converted into a usual quantum circuit. And so, but the idea is like, unless someone was thinking in terms of quantum walks, they probably wouldn't have come up with this algorithm. So it's, it's, it's an interesting format. I mean, it's the same thing with classical computing. Like, you know, we have, I mentioned again, these classical random walks are uh, used for a bunch of classical algorithms. But ultimately, when you program this and your computer compiles it and everything, it eventually turns into just fundamental logic gates. And so it's like in your head as an algorithm designer, you might think in a certain framework in terms of random walks, and then your computer will convert it down into what it can do, which would be logic cases, like, you know, ands, ors, nots, things like that. Hmm. And same thing with a quantum computer. You know, you might come up with an algorithm in, in the framework of quantum walks, and then once we have quantum compilers and all these things, you know, it would break down into quantum gates. Interesting. Um, and so, yeah, it's a very useful notion for coming up with new quantum algorithms. Um, so, so what are they? They're, they're quantum versions. So, what 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 are certain properties that are quantum? So, I mentioned like with a classical random walk, you might flip a coin. If it's heads, you move right. If it's tails, you move left. Um, so now, instead of having a normal classical coin, you might replace it with a quantum coin, where the outcome is a superposition or some combination of zero and one. So you're making that quantum. And then you can make it so that when the walker steps to the right or to the left, instead of being at just one position, they can be in a superposition of positions. So you're making that quantum as well. And so it turns out that just by making those couple of changes, you can have a very different uh, evolution. And so I mentioned that with a classical random walk, after, say, 100 steps, you're most likely near where you started out. But with a quantum walk, you're actually more likely to be far away. And so the probability uh, evolution... Is, is just very different in how it's shaped. And um, and it turns out that this different behavior uh, can result in faster algorithms. Huh. So you said that it, you're more likely to be farther away. Is that compared to the random walk? So you just have like a shallower yes. bell curve? Or oh, is no. it... It's actually shaped fundamentally different. So it's shaped kind of like, uh, kind of like Batman's ears, where you have like a big spike on one side, 
very little in the middle and then another big spike on the other side. So the probability of being far away in those two big spikes is is high. And then the probability of being elsewhere is fairly low. That's really interesting. Yeah. So it's not, it's not, it's not like bell curve shaped at all. Huh. Okay. Is there any intuition as to, as to why that happens? Um, just the way that the quantum amplitudes like waves, just how they like interfere. The the interference is such that the the amplitudes in the middle tend to cancel out, and you get these two spikes at the end. Okay, interesting. So this is bad news for anyone who's in a superposition while drunk. Yes, yeah. <laughs> if you are drunk quantumly, then you are in trouble. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Okay, so we, we've got over regular quantum walks. What makes a quantum walk lackadaisical? Yeah, so this lackadaisical quantum walk that I came up with um, is just a, a type of lazy quantum walk. So lackadaisical is a synonym for lazy. And actually, originally, I wanted to call this a lazy quantum walk, but that term was already used in a in a different uh, context, and so I couldn't use it. So I looked up in a you know what are synonyms for lazy, and lackadaisical was one of them. And I was like, I like that. Let's go with lackadaisical. So that's how I picked the name, and it's basically a quantum walk. Um, that has some probability of staying put. Um, so even just even classically, you can think of this like a lazy random walk or lackadaisical. Again, there's a synonym: lackadaisical random walk. Instead of you know flipping a coin, having some probability of moving right, some probability of moving left alone, you have some probability of moving left, some probability of moving right, and some probability of staying put. And so that's what we mean by lazy. It's like there's some chance that you won't do anything; you'll just stay there. And so. Uh, if you have this type of lazy random walk, it changes your, uh, your it changes your uh, probabilities, where um, you're going to be even more likely to be near where you started. Um, but with the quantum version of this, so now it's the same idea, right? You, now you when you flip your coin, then you can be in a superposition of right, left, and staying put. Um, and you can, again, be in a superposition of different possible uh, locations. So if you do that, then you do have a chance of staying uh, close to where you started. But remember those like two Batman ear peaks that were far away? Mm. Those are actually even further away now. So in some sense, so in one sense, it is lazy in that you know, there is now a chance that you stay near the middle. So you basically get like three peaks. You get a peak in the middle where you started and you get the two peaks at the end, but they're further away from the normal quantum walk. So it's, it is lazy in a sense that you have some probability of staying put, but it's in some sense, it's even less lazy because you might end up even further away than you would have. That's, that's really counterintuitive that yeah. having the ability to stay in the same place means that you go farther. Mm-hmm. That's huh. I, yeah, I, so basically it just changes the like wave interference again. Yeah. And so it makes it so that the constructive interference happens further out. So you get us get these peaks further out. Yeah. Um, and basically we've discovered that these lackadaisical quantum walks can actually result not just in you know faster movement in a line, but it can actually result in faster search algorithms. Hmm. And so I I found this quite interesting because it's kind of counterintuitive that making something lazy would actually speed things up. Um, but this is a, something that is definitely a, a very quantum thing, because if you do the same, if you work out the, the math classically, you actually find that it's just slower. But quantumly, you, it, it can result in faster algorithms. Interesting. 
And so how much, how much faster um, can you possibly get? Um, I guess that's still an uh, open question. Um, And it's going to vary depending on what the structure of your data is. Again, like, is your data laid out in a line? Is your data laid out in a grid? Is it in some other weird network uh, or structure? And so um, what I've been doing with my students lately is we've been exploring different structures um, and exploring how these lackadaisical quantum walks can affect search on them. Interesting. Okay. Um, I've got a fun challenge for you before we okay. before we wrap this up. Um, are you familiar with um, like Bacon number or like six yes. degrees of separation? Okay. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna do that, but with okay. qubit touchdown and quantum walks. So, okay. how many how many jumps does it take to get from qubit touchdown to quantum walks? Uh, in terms of like research, or in terms of what? Like, what what are your links? What, you're allowed to have links of like. Uh, commonly commonly available ideas um so no uh, no like intense mathematics uh you got to stick with this qubit touchdown uh okay. theme of you don't need to know any linear algebra for this for these links uh i don't know if this is following the like spirit of your question but i mean qubit touchdown has qubit in it right so once you get to qubit then you get into quantum computing and you get into quantum walk. So if you follow that route, it's it's pretty close. If you try to follow the football route, I think you might find it further. I mean, there is the the pro football player who got his math PhD, I want to say at like MIT, actually. Oh, really? So if you were to go the football route, you'd probably go through him. Um, I think he was interviewed by Steve Strogas, who is a, a mathematician who does a lot of great like uh, science uh uh, communication and he has interviewed physicists and he's actually interviewed Charlie Marcus recently um, for a podcast who is a, a researcher who tries to build quantum computers so that's how you get to quantum computers and then from there you can get to quantum walks okay. so you can also go the football route nice okay I, w- I would not have guessed that but good trivia um, and so we've got our last three questions that always okay. ask the yes um, and the first one is, what do you see as the biggest problem in quantum computing today? Hmm. I mean, I, oh man, that's a good <laughs> question. I, I should have, I should have listened to your podcast and realize, you know, listen to enough of your podcast to realize that this was a common question. <laughs> um, I, I, I can think of two different ways to answer this. One is like, what is the biggest technical problem? And obviously it's like deco decoherence, which is the all of the of the noise in quantum computers, that quantum computers are much more vulnerable to noise, and that's what makes them so hard to build. But I think in some sense, the biggest problem with quantum computing outside of the technical parts is just the need for training and educating the like next generation quantum workforce. And to try to uh, bring quantum computing to to the masses in the sense of like, you know, most of the quantum computing research that's been going on has taken place uh, on the like, co- at least in the US, has taken place on the coast and the West Coast and the East Coast, because that's where there's more like universities and there's just bigger population centers. Um, but at least for me now, being a professor at Creighton uh, in the Midwest, like I see that there are a lot of bright students that I work with that are only getting exposure to quantum computing because I got hired at Creighton. And there's a lot of other universities that are similar, but don't have someone like me yet. 
students to bring quantum computing to those students. And you know, it might be that some of those it might be that some of those students are going to be the ones who solve this problem with decoherence. And so, in some sense, I feel like we're not fully engaging our own population yet in order to get the people that are going to be solving the like technical challenges. In some sense, technical challenges are people challenges in the sense of like, you know, if you get the right minds, you get the right people together, then the technical challenges seem less daunting, hmm. you know, when you get the right people involved. And, you know, I would like to see more people engage and that's, and, you know, and this podcast is, is one way of doing that. I think that you're, that you're, that you're doing great work in, you know, bringing quantum computing and perhaps in a more casual environment, a way that anyone can access because um, it's freely available on the internet. I think it's a great way to start engaging people. And you're not just in the US, but like internationally with the internet, like anyone can access this and listen to it. And, you know, if someone gets inspired about quantum computing through this, and I think that that is making progress towards solving this like biggest challenge in quantum computing. Yeah, nice. Yeah. yeah um... I might've gotten a lot more philosophical there than, <laughs> than, you, than you thought I would. Not the most philosophical answer I've gotten though. So, uh... okay. <laughs> No, that that's really good answer, and I, I would agree that like, uh, biggest biggest people problems are, uh, sorry, the biggest technical problems are solved by solving the people problems first. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so then next question is, what do you see as the biggest promise um, in quantum computing in the next like five to ten years? Hmm. Again, there's different ways to answer this. I mean, biggest promise, you could either think of it as like the biggest promises that people have made that might not be well-founded <laughs> at all. Um, and, that, we're, and for the, the listeners, like there's this, this growing issue that many in the quantum community have noticed, which is that people are jumping on the quantum bandwagon um, and are creating startups that are claiming that quantum computers can solve these elaborate problems and therefore you know you should give all this money to my startup and a lot of their claims are not actually based on reality and so you know that would be a very big promise but not a well-founded <laughs> promise um in terms of things that you know we actually do have a sense that quantum computers can actually uh deliver um in five to ten years i think Hmm. What was this? You're specifically asking about quantum computing or quantum information science more broadly? Oh, I'll allow quantum information science broadly. Okay. So quantum information science more broadly, like we are already seeing technologies that are coming to market and that have come to market based on quantum mechanics. It's not quantum computing, but it's still technologies, whether it's sensors or ways to generate random numbers in a way that can't be uh, predicted um, and things like that. So I, I think we're going to see a lot of new quantum technologies come a, a, about that um, through that. And I think quantum computing, most of the big kind of useful things, I think are going to be a little bit further out. Fair enough. Uh, this has been great. If people want to find out more about Qubit Touchdown or your work with lackadaisical quantum walks or quantum search in general, uh, where should they go to find out more about any of that? Yeah, you can find out more about my work at my 
uh, website. It's, it's thomaswong.net, just my name, T-H-O-M-A-S-W-O-N-G.net, um, where I have links to all my papers and I have a link to Cuba Touchdown as well. And so you can find out more about it there. And there's also my contact info. So you feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions. Awesome. Uh, Tom, this has been great. Lots of fun. Uh, really informative. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's, it's, been, it's, been, it's been a pleasure. Okay, no questions or corrections at this time. Although someone on Minds did reach out to me to say thank you for making the John Skerritt episode. Uh, basically, just this is a good quantum computing breakdown, just a general nice thing. So if you're listening to this, thank you for reaching out to me. Uh, if you would like to reach out to me, you can do so, like I just said, on Minds.com at one Ethan Hansen. You can also do it via email, one Ethan Hansen at protonmail.com. Or you can send me an anchor voice message. And links to all of those are, of course, in the show notes. As per our usual arrangement, there are links to everything that Tom and I talked about in the show notes. You can find resources if you'd like to. I also recently hit 2 to the 16 total plays on all of my episodes. That's about 66,000. And I want to just say thank you all for listening, supporting me, all of that good stuff. When I started this podcast, I was thinking, like, if I got 100 listens on every episode and I had, like, 3,000 total plays at this point, that would be, uh, like, a big success. And I w- I've been blown away by how many people are interested and supportive of what I'm doing. So it's super encouraging to know that people are actually getting value from what I'm doing here. Uh, so, yeah, just thank you all. If anyone's interested, because this is a new milestone, um, like I've said in the past, I will set up a live AMA. Um, but in order to do that, I need someone to reach out to me first saying, yes, do it. Um, last time I hit a milestone like this, I, I said the same thing. No one reached out, so I just skipped it. Um, if, yeah, if you're not interested, don't reach out, obviously. If no one's interested, then no point wasting my time, no point wasting your time. And if you would like to support me so I can make more and better episodes, please support me on Anchor. There's a link to that in the show notes, or you can send me some crypto. I've got addresses in the show notes for that as well. Thank you for listening, and I'll have the next episode out when I get to it.